Hi, I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and you're listening to Love in Public. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Ainsley Carey. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. Dr. Ainsley came to UBC in 2018 to serve as the university's Vice President of Students. This work is not new to him. Before coming to UBC, he was previously appointed as Vice Provost for Student Affairs at USC in California, as well as at Auburn University in Alabama. Within his position as VP of Students, Dr. Ainsley hopes to make the student experience at UBC the best that it can be. In his time here, he's noticed that a number of students on campus have been lucky enough to have the most incredible time, and he is working tirelessly to remove existing barriers so that this experience can become accessible to the entire student population. I remember first witnessing Dr. Ainsley when he spoke at my Imagine Day ceremony in the fall of 2019. And I say this now without a doubt in my mind, he is one of the most charismatic, well-spoken individuals on this campus. And as if his presence on stage isn't enough, Dr. Ainsley also strikes me for his true generosity of spirit when it comes to his unwavering commitment to serving the students of this community. Dr. Ainsley, how are you doing today? Avril, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for a very warm and generous welcome. <laughs> Where are you tuning in from? I'm tuning in from um, Vancouver today, near the UBC campus in Westbrook Village, where I live. Amazing. So I hope you don't mind being my guinea pig. I thought that I would debut a new little segment of 10 little questions. Just quick fire, whatever comes to your mind. Um, ready for it? Let's do it. Awesome. 10 little questions. Dr. Ainsley, what's one hobby that you picked up during quarantine? Um, reading and writing. I always have been a reader, but um, do, as the course of work, it's hard to get so much reading done. So I just dove into it because my evenings were more available and I did a lot of writing this um, past year as well. Oh, I know you've been doing a lot of writing and that's something I want to talk about today. Second question, if you could have dinner with any famous person, living or dead, who would you choose? Barack Obama without a question. I'm with you there. What is a song that you've been listening to on repeat lately? You know, I, I am not a repeat song listener. I am almost anything hip hop and R&B. I just love the rhythm of the music. So even if I'm not familiar with the words or can't keep pace with the words, just the energy and the rhythm of the music is what I really listen to. Since I've been in Canada, I've been listening to a little bit more Drake while I've been here. And I pretty much enjoy almost 80% of what he produces. That's really interesting to me. I'm such a creature of habit, so I like to play the same song, the same record on repeat until I'm absolutely tired of it. <laughs> yeah. I try to avoid that because I don't want to eventually not like the song anymore, and that's what tends to happen to me. <laughs> yeah, that's a solid point. Dr. Ainsley, what place is at the top of your travel list as soon as the borders open up again? Well, you might know I am originally from southeast in the U.S., from kind of Florida, Miami, Georgia, South Carolina area. So I am missing kind of some southern football, some southern home cooking. Um, so I will definitely, once, the, once everything opens back up, I'll likely be in between Miami, Atlanta, and Dallas, just hanging out, eating, meeting with friends, and hopefully going to some more football games. What was your first real job out of high school? 
So out of high school, I went straight to college. So I went to school at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And, um, but while I was in high school, I worked. So as soon as I was eligible to work, I was about 16 years old. My first job was at a Burger King. So I worked at Burger King with a couple friends and we just had a ball and really enjoyed it. And then after Burger King, I worked at a place called BJ's Wholesale Club. It's similar to what we know as Costco's today. Um, but that's, those were the places that I worked in high school. And then when I went off to college, my, my focus was university life and being a student athlete. That makes a lot of sense. What is one small sweet thing that you're feeling grateful for today? Today, specifically, I get to hang out with my daughter a little bit. Today is a daddy-daughter day, and um, we get to hang out, and her puppy is going to join us, and we're just going to, you know, play it by ear, as she says. Uh, I try to plan stuff, like I wanted to plan a menu and be very specific, and she was like, uh, can we just play it by ear? She's 14, so um, sometimes she wants to plan, but sometimes she just wants to play it by ear, because by ear to her is just kind of, you know, sit around and chill. Yeah, I envy her spontaneity. I'm also a hyper planner, so I appreciate when people <laughs> tell me to, yeah, to play it by ear. Dr. Yeah. Ainsley, what is your favorite Marvel movie? Well, it's so interesting that you would use Marvel. Um, my daughter is a Marvel fanatic right now. Um, so uh, during the pandemic, uh, we came up with this idea to watch all the Marvel movies in sequence. At first I was thinking, okay, seven movies, we can do that over the course of two weeks. There are 23 Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, yeah, it's quite an undertaking to watch all of them. So we did it um, probably in about a three to four week period, um, watching about two per day, um, got through all the Marvel movies and it was the most bonding experiences that we had um, as, as a family. And um, the ones that I have always liked, pre you know watching them all, the Iron Man movies. I just like the Morton Downey Jr. character, his his kind of spunk, his his attitude, his, his comedic timing. But um, yeah, anything, all of the three Iron Man movies are the ones that I really like. I see that. I feel like I'm pretty loyal to the Spider Man trilogies, just because I grew up on the one with Tobey Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> If you had to do a redo of your entire life, what is one other career that you could totally see yourself in? I think I would have been very interested in um, being behind the scenes in professional sports. Um, when, I, when I watch an athletic event, I think, you know, they're not only the athletes on the field and they're the coaches on the sideline, but behind that, there's marketing, there's construction, there's the television crew, there's the management crew, there's player personnel, there are travel assistants. It, it's an entire world of professions in professional sports other than what happens on the field. So I think I would have liked um, doing kind of the work that I do on behalf of students, but doing it behind the scene with a professional sports league. Mm, I like that. When was the last time that you couldn't put a book down? Ooh, well, um, this summer, as soon as Barack Obama's book came out, of course, I picked that up and it's um, several hundred pages, about 400 pages of stories. 
and I, I was entrenched in it and I couldn't put it down for a while because every chapter I was waiting for him to, you know, tell the next story, tell the next story or give us the behind the scenes look at a particular story that was going on. So prior to that, it was Michelle Obama's book that I really enjoyed and couldn't put down. And then when Barack came out with his book, I had the same experience. It's funny that you say that. My mom loves Barack and Michelle Obama, and I remember listening to snippets of both of their books in the car with her over the last yeah. six months or so. He's just such a, they're both such great, they're both such great storytellers. That's what I love about them. Mm -hmm. Last question here. What is a scent that immediately takes you back to your childhood? <laughs> you know, thinking about this question, um, I was struggling with it for a while, and then suddenly I remembered when I was younger, um, for the first time landing in Miami, Florida. Um, so my parents were divorced when I was about 10 years old, and um, my younger brother and I went with our mom. And my mom, we moved from New York City, and my mom moved to South Florida and got a home there. And when we first flew into South Florida, we landed, and I remember stepping off the plane and smelling the ocean. Like it's such a different smell than being in New York, right? Different parts of New York. So I smell the ocean and every time I step off a plane now to this day, I try to smell where I am, right? And when I, when I smell the ocean, it completely triggers that 10 year old memory of stepping off a plane in South Florida. And anytime I fly into Florida now, almost anywhere you travel into Florida, you smell the ocean. Well, I smell the ocean when I land in Orlando and Tampa and Jacksonville, especially in Miami. So the, the smell that takes me back to my childhood is um, the smell of the ocean. I know exactly what you mean. I grew up near bodies of water and I always feel way more comfortable and at home when I'm when I can smell the ocean or smell a lake or I don't even know if lakes have smells, but that same sentiment. I want to use that last question to ground this next part. Of course, there are so many things I want to talk about, but I really would like to ground us first in the places that you've called home. Dr. Benel Matani, who I know is a dear friend of yours, is constantly reminding me about our childhood geographies, how the places that we spend our lives in and the communities that we find ourselves in have such a profound effect on how it is that we know what we know. Tell me, where is home for you? I know you've touched upon it a little bit. Yeah, I've lived so many places in my life now. Um, I was born in New York, grew up in Miami, Florida, went to school in Gainesville, Florida, and then after Gainesville, you know, graduated from university and went to work in Dallas, Texas at SMU. And then after SMU, went to Arkansas, then Philadelphia, then Auburn, Alabama, then Los Angeles, and now British Columbia. So I realized um, when I was thinking about this question, um, I've moved so much that I make home wherever I land, wherever my family is, wherever we've settled down, that becomes home. We embrace that community, learn the culture, figure new things out, um, try to learn the language, but wherever I settle down, that, that's really what I think of. I'm, I'm going back home. Uh, as much as I would like to think Miami is home, it's not. As much as I'd like to think New York is home, it's not. Um, so home for me really is the place that I go and set up shop and put, put down a bed and couch and furniture and um, have family around me. That, that becomes home for me. So um, I find myself being a, a transplant, a traveler of the world. Uh, and I can set up somewhere in another part of the world and we'll make that home. 
I love that phrase that you use, that home is where I land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I feel that. Something that you and I both share, Ainsley, is that we're both Americans who've repatriated to Canada in the last five years. And I won't speak for you, of course, but something that I have noticed while during my time in Canada is that sometimes, and not always, there's a a quiet smugness in Canada about being quote-unquote better than the Americans. And, And I get this feeling that part of Canadian pride is being un American. And while this doesn't necessarily seem like a bad thing, I think that it can cause people to falsely believe that things like systemic racism, white supremacy, and inequality don't exist north of the border. I know once that you mentioned that you moved up to Canada in part because you wanted to escape some of the blatant racism that you experienced in the States. Were you surprised to find that similar forms of racism also existed in Canada? I was very much surprised because the uh, the narrative of Canada while you're living in the U.S., right, was that these things don't happen in Canada. So Canadians that I met or heard of just talked about kind of this blissful harmony of all people working and living together and issues of skin color and gender were less of issues than they are in the, in the U.S. And, and I came from parts of the U.S., the deep south, like Bible Belt South. I lived in Florida and spent time in Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia. So I, I knew what those places were like. So there was this incredible relief thinking about, wow, raising my daughter in a place and space that um, her gender and her race would not be limitations to what she can do and where she could go. Um, so I came here with that framework, thinking that Canada was this different place. I will admit to being shocked when some of my early experiences here were just as traumatic and racist as experiences I had in Alabama. They weren't much different. Um, So there was a a considerable amount of disappointment coming here and and believing certain things to be so, and they weren't. Um, So I expect some things to happen on the street or being followed in a grocery store or in a a nice store, Um, someone clutching their purse when I walk the street. I I, I have an expectation that that will happen as a black man traveling in the world. I didn't expect that as much here in Canada, but it, it happens. The place that I've been most disappointed is the institutional racism, the embedded structural um, acts of racism that exist here, just like they do in every institution um, in the U.S. And when I look around and look at the the absence of rep- diverse representation on our campus, both in the student body and in the faculty, um, it, I'm heartbroken by thinking that um, this was going to be much different than what I had experienced in the past. So I I am committed while I'm here to move the ball forward as fast and far as I can. Um, That's why my work with the the President's Anti-Racism Task Force is so important to me because um, I think think folks are willing, um, but for the precise reasons that you pointed out, this belief that we are not America. Uh, I probably wouldn't use the term un-American, but we're not America. So the bad things happen south of the border. Well, the truth is some of that happens here. And because they believe it doesn't happen here, no one is working on it. 
So uh, I, I share this sentiment and this concern that um, the experience here is different, but it's not, um, it's not, it's not, it's not an anti-racist society yet, not yet. I like that you use the word yet. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm also really glad that you bring up a lot of the work that you're doing in your observations of institutional racism at UBC because something that you are quite committed to is furthering the mission of EDI, which stands for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And maybe it's just me, but over the last year or so, with the surge in anti-Asian racism and Black Lives Matter and intersections of change making in regards to the pandemic, I feel like these words, equity, diversity, and inclusion, they've become buzzwords that are often used by institutions, corporations, and so on to appear socially conscious. And sometimes I don't see the follow through. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that, but also what those words mean to you, especially in the context of how they apply to the university space. Mm -hmm. And I'll do a little bit of background on the terms, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I remember when I first started in this profession 20 plus years ago, um, the focus was on diversity, meaning we need to bring more different people into the circle, into the, you know, let's remove the tent and invite everyone. So it was about increasing diversity at the university, more, more diverse faculty, more diverse staff. And, and that was the movement for a while, when there was this realization of the absence of people of color in a particular space. Um, so th that was the focus for a while. And then I recall when the focus shifted, where um, other groups said, hey, it can't just be about skin color. What about inclusion? Let's make sure people feel included. Well, some people think that that strengthened the diversity movement. It, in fact, weakened the diversity movement because inclusion just meant everybody now, right? So now we were trying to create societies that everybody was involved. So the focus on recruiting students of color, faculty of color, kind of diminished because we just wanted to make sure that the boardroom had everybody. Kind of when you do a focus on everybody, that kind of means nobody, right? So equity and inclusion was the term for a while. I mean, diversity and inclusion was the term for a while. And then we brought onto the table, well, you know, things should be equitable. Let's, let's make sure everyone is, you know, getting paid the same, their voices matter the same. Let's create everything equitable. So inclusion and equity took over the diversity work. The diversity work was about making sure black, Hispanic, indigenous people of color were here meaning intentional recruitment, intentional hiring, compensation packages, um, engagement in a way that made sure those entities came. But when we moved into the inclusion and equity game, it diluted the uh, initial um, effort around um, diversity. So it, it's been very interesting to me how the evolution, meaning the broadening of the terms, adding two additional terms, may not have advanced the mission, right? So I think when you look at colleges and universities and look at their ethnic profiles, we still look the same way we did 20, 30, 40 years ago um, with very small representation of people of color. So I think in the hearts of leaders and administrators, the intention to move the ball forward, and I'll speak specifically to myself and Santa Ono, there's a lot of commitment to move the ball forward I think something that sometimes we underestimate 
is the weight of the institution um, because it's not just convincing two leaders of the university. We have to convince the deans, the faculties, hiring committees, those who recruit students. Everyone has to believe that this is a part of their work and it's not just the work of two administrators. As, as high ranking as they may be, it really requires the work of everybody, right? So we can recruit a class of students here, like right now we're recruiting the Beyond Tomorrow Scholars, um, black Canadian scholars, students who will join um, UBC. If they don't have a good experience here, if other tr students treat them poorly or say offensive things to them, it's very easy for those students to leave. So the work belongs to all of us. And as soon as we feel that commitment as a community, then I think we can see this ball moving forward. But I think you pick up on a really key point that the terminology has been tossed around, sometimes without the heart behind it. Um, and the terminology has impacted how we do this work. I think that it's something that's easy to misunderstand as a student, and I include myself in this, that it is so much bigger than just the heads of a faculty or administrators that it is something that involves a really great effort and that we all need to be equally committed to furthering these values. Let's shift, yeah, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about leadership for a moment. You have years and years of experience in leading portfolios on student life and well-being. I'd love to hear from you about your own personal philosophy when it comes to leadership. What is the kind of leadership that you value? And perhaps it's inspired by some of the leaders in your own life. And in that same vein, what is the kind of leadership that you aim to practice in your day-to-day -day work? I always operate from the thing that I would prefer. Like that's the frame of reference that I can imagine. And, and my preference is to be hired into a role that will be challenging, that I have to grow in. And I don't want to be micromanaged on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but I do need a leader that will help me clear barriers. When, there's, when I am trying to achieve a mission and things are difficult, I may turn to my leader to say, here's the thing that I need your help with. Um, and I, I want us to do this together. So whatever movement we need to make together, I need their help to, to move that barrier. So I like to be that same leader. I want to hire competent people and get out of their way. And they come to me when there are barriers, when there are things that are stopping them from accomplishing their goals or the organization's goal. My role as a leader is to help clear that barrier. And I need them to come with ideas as well, right? I, I prefer that it's not just, hey, here's a problem that I'm having and they drop it on my desk, but I prefer to be in a situation where together, we're trying to decide what's the best path to go. So they're bringing ideas to the table and I have a responsibility to help them move that as well. So I am hands off. Now, I will also add, I'm also situational. It depends on the crisis that we're facing and what type of leader I need to be. So when it's a complex crisis and we don't have all the answers, I'll roll up my sleeve and get in the weeds, right? So we need to spend time in the weeds and let's all figure it out together. But typically when the parameters are defined and I hire people who do a certain type of work, whether it be housing or dining or student recreation, I get out of the way because we hired experts in that space. But when we have undefined challenges like a pandemic, vaccine requirements, mass requirements, suddenly we all have to say, whoa, wait a minute, the parameters are not defined. 
So I need to spend some time figuring that out. I appreciate you saying at the start of this question that you, the way that you operate is you think, what is the kind of leader that I need? And I think for myself, I, I do the same. I think a lot about, I want to have a leader who values me and who sees my strengths. And so whenever I lead, I'm always trying to make sure that, that my team feels valued and that they know that I'm recognizing and drawing upon their strengths in whatever setting we're in. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something that's been on a lot of our listeners' minds lately because a lot of people who are tuning in are in second and third year, and that's the return to in-person learning this fall. There's so much to talk about here. Of course, there's the health and safety side of things, the logistical part, which is everything to do with protecting the health of everyone in the UBC community, following provincial health orders and limiting the spread of the virus, especially in light of the Delta variant. There's also the huge number of students who are stuck all over the world due to border restrictions who are going to have to do another semester of online learning. And I'm a psych major, so I often just jump to how is this going to affect people psychologically? And I think that although we're beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel, a light at the end of the COVID tunnel, a lot of people are still feeling down, are still feeling emotionally out of sorts. And this pandemic has affected us all collectively in such a profound way that it can be hard for us to even imagine what going back to the way things were what that would look like. I know for myself, I'm excited, but I'm also a little bit apprehensive about going back to, to everything in person in September. What are your biggest priorities and concerns when it comes to our return to in-person learning and following through a little bit more with, with this conversation on inclusion, how are you working to make sure that Every single student in our community feels included, those who are immunocompromised, those who are stuck on the other side of the world, um, making sure that they feel just as included as all of our students who are able to attend classes in person. Yeah, this is a good question. And this is something that we as the university have been contemplating for several months now. Um, we, we've known for a while that September of 2021, we would return to campus because students had been away so long. And we know the reason, one of the main reasons that students choose UBC is for the experience. University is about bumping into people in residence halls, dealing with conflict, attending classes, going to events, dining in large facilities, attending concerts. An important part of the educational experience is what happens outside the classroom. And that's the work of, of student affairs. So we knew it was important several months ago to make sure that there would be a, a date that we would come back to campus, and, and that's September. There was a lot of optimism at the time that enough people would be vaccinated, our communities would feel safer, access to the vaccine would be easier, whether it's in Canada, the United States, or around the world. But again, this was several months ago when we were having these visions of what the future would look like. And it hasn't panned out the way that many of us in the world had imagined, especially with the virus continuing to mutate and turn into more difficult strains as, as we've moved throughout the pandemic. We're still committed to having that return to campus experience. We've done some surveys of our incoming student body and more than 80% of our st students returning have been double vaccinated. 90% um, of them have at least one vaccine. So we feel 
confident and comfortable that our students get the message about the importance of the vaccine. We also know that students are joining us from countries around the world that may not have readily ready access to a vaccine. And we wanna make that possible as soon as they arrive here. So we're gonna put all the safety measures in place, whether it be you know getting approval from the provincial health to do mass mandates, to do vaccine mandates, to make testing available, to make access to vaccines available. And let me be clear, the University of British Columbia is part of the province of BC, um, and we have provincial health authorities here. So this is less about the individual opinion of Ainsley Carey and Santa Ono. This is really about the guidance of our public health partners. We may, you may watch what's going on in the states where politicians are making public health decisions about what people can and can't do. We're trying to stay out of that and allow the public health experts to provide guidance because they have access to more data than we do. And we are hearing from students as well. We're hearing from parents about demands for different uh, mandates. And we're listening to that, but we're also taking direction and signals from our public health experts to make sure that, that we stay in tune with how we move forward. Wherever we end up, we're gonna do everything in that space to, to provide as much support and guidance for students. I'd also like to add, it, the feelings of uncertainty, anxiety, depression, these are normal feelings. Many of us, the most stable people in the world, in our community, um, the most fragile people in our community, many people are having these feelings right now. Um, it's important for me to let students know that they're not alone. In, in these feelings, in these fears, in these concerns. We have ramped up our student counseling services during this um, pandemic year. Um, we have counseling both on the ground and counselors available 24 seven for students around the world. Um, our counseling used to be domestic only. Now our counseling services that are virtual are, are available to students anywhere they are in the world seven days a week. So we have the COVID pandemic has um, made us become so much more innovative in things that we used to think that we couldn't do, like expansion of counseling services and other support services with the realization that students are going through a very difficult time in their life and returning to campus is gonna be a shocker initially. Um, you know, sitting in a large classroom and someone coughs, what do you do? Sitting in a large classroom and a couple students decide not to wear a mask going to a basketball game or football game or going to a lecture. All of these things we haven't done in almost two years. So to return and expect everybody to return as, as normal, we know will be challenging. At the same time, I'd also like to mention that we enter this term with mixed emotions, meaning there are a number of students who are living their best life. Right? My 14-year-old daughter, she's an introvert. So not being in school, not being in crowds, being able to come home for lunch, she has been loving that. So I don't know <laughs> what the percentage of our student body might be who are saying, this has been great for me. I, I got to stay home. I have to home. go back now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been in my parents' basement. Uh, I have my own room. I have my computer. My puppy is right here. I have access to my refrigerator. It, this has been great for, for many students, so I don't want to paint the picture that everyone is anxious and depressed. It, there's some anxiety about returning, and it's not because um, they're concerned about COVID. Um, we're getting ready to change the lives, especially first and second year students who did their first year and a half at home, 
suddenly they're entering university for the first time. Uh, one of our big challenges is that we have a, a first year class and a second year class who've never been on campus. So suddenly we have nearly 30% of the university community will be experiencing UBC for the first time. So they're saying, where's the rec center? Where's the restrooms? Where's my classroom? And that How used am to I going to get around? That used to be first year students. Now we're looking at first and second year students having this new to UBC experience. Mm. So um, we have wrapped our arms around all of the complexities of reintroducing UBC. We've hired hundreds of student ambassadors who will provide direction and support on a day-to-day -day basis. We're making signage clear. Um, we're providing free masks for students who need masks. Everybody probably has tons of masks right now, but it's super important that we be a little um, extra attentive at the beginning of this year to help people get acclimated. Mm. Ainsley, I feel really comforted by your words and, and I can tell that there has been, that there is an ongoing and very informed effort when it comes to this return to in-person learning. And, and I didn't interrupt you earlier, but when you said that this anxiety, what people are feeling, even for the most stable people, these feelings that feel uncomfy and yucky, it is normal. I teared up a little bit because I definitely resonated with that. Taking it from well, not so dark, but something that can seem a little bit heavy to something a little bit more celebratory because I do want to make room for moments of celebration here on the pod. Something that not everyone knows about you is that you are a published author and that you've got a book that just came out days ago. It's called Washington Next, and it's a book all about monuments on college campuses, but it's about so much more than that, really. Tell me the story behind the story. What prompted you to pick up your pen and write this book? Thanks for asking about this. So in 2015, while I was at the University of Southern California, universities around the country um, were meeting with students. Well, students had prompted demands for more equity, diversity, and inclusion on campus. And student governance were coming to the university administration with a list of demands. And I was a part of helping facilitate that conversation at USC. And part of that list of demands included issues about campus memorials and symbols that students were concerned about not just at USC, but all over the country, especially schools in the Southern United States that had Confederate monuments, buildings named after members of the Ku Klux Klan, buildings named after those who were involved in segregation, Jim Crow, lynching, massacres. There were buildings and monuments on Southern campuses, campuses throughout the US that, were connect, that had a connection to that past. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, one day I'll be at a university and we have to figure out how to negotiate this, like how to talk it through. How do we remove a building name or remove a monument or statue or pay attention to symbols on campus that have another meaning? So I started taking notes on my phone, actually, for about a year and a half, uh, 2016 and 2017. That's all I, you know, I was just when I had a free time, I, I just write a note down in the notes section of my phone. And then I arrived here, kept taking the notes, and then the pandemic hit. And then I opened those notes and I started reading through them. And I said, let me download these notes on, into a Word document. There were 45 pages of notes in a Word document, 45 pages. And this was kind of two years of scribbling. So I said, let me turn this into something. 
So typically in my role and senior administrators roles, uh, we, we kind of have a, a nine to five day, but after five o'clock, I'm attending an event, uh, an event at the president's house, a student organization event, a lecture. So I'm usually getting home eight, nine o'clock at night, get a chance to see my daughter before she goes to bed. And that's my day, at least four or five days out of the week, very long nights. So during the pandemic, suddenly after my Zoom call that end at five, I'm sitting at home. I have dinner with my daughter and we play with the puppy and next thing you know, I got four hours left. Um, so I started putting my time to work and finished Washington Next with a complete focus on understanding um, Confederate monuments on campus, why they are defended, why students are concerned, and what I found was amazing. Um, 25 universities in the United States produce comprehensive reports on their response to Confederate monuments. Um, a large part of the student concern was that these monuments memorialize men who were involved in fighting for the Confederacy. The Confederacy was focused on maintaining slavery. Men who were involved in colonization and the expansion of the United States men who were involved in lynching, segregation, massacres, and eugenics. These were names that were being honored and protected on US campuses. So um, that was their primary concern. And the root of those issues are all drawn back to white supremacy. And that is a major discovery that all of these things are connected. These are not random events. So how do we elevate this and have the more difficult conversation about what these memorials and monuments really mean. Those who are protecting them and those who are protesting them think it's just about the name on the building. Removing the name doesn't change the history. So how do we have a deeper conversation about what these memorials mean and the institutional structures that keep these memorials in place? So that was what my book was all about. It's really about having the conversation and what are the components of the conversation? We have to talk about, and I'll end on this point, we'll have to talk about what's the principal legacy of the honoree that we are discussing? Like, what, were they, what did they really stand for? Um, sometimes people make mistakes in life. People have mixed legacies. Was this a mistake? Or was this an intentional activity that this individual was involved in and it impacted generations? Another category is the category of preservation. As humans, we want to protect things. We want to keep things intact. We have tons of memorials and statues and seacoasts that we preserve, that we write legislation to protect. So as humans, we want to protect things. We don't want to just destroy them. So Confederate monuments are something that many Southerners in the U.S. want to protect. But what does preservation mean in this context? How do we preserve the legacy or the lessons we learned from the Civil War? Is it by mounting a statue and keeping a building name, or is it about the history that we tell around these? Another category is landscape fairness. Some universities realized that putting up a statue or a flag that represents the Confederacy or a building that offends indigenous people, a name of a building that offends indigenous people, has an impact on the environment, has an impact on the landscape. So every time you pass this monument, you feel a certain way about it. One of the best examples, in many cases, some of these names were on residence halls. We were asking students to live in residence halls named after Ku Klux Klan leaders, 
named after Confederate soldiers, named after men whose legacy was about colonization. And we're asking black, indigenous, and people of color to live in that residence hall and chair on that residence hall, knowing that the person who it's named after didn't want them there. And then the last category, what moral standards should be used to make these decisions? Should we use the standards of the past or should we use the standards of today? Many students want to say, today this is morally corrupt and wrong. Some of those who want to preserve these monuments say, but wait a minute, a hundred years ago, this was normal behavior, colonization, slavery, eugenics was approved by the US Supreme Court. So at the time, the honoree wasn't breaking any laws, wasn't doing anything wrong. Now, 100 years later, okay, we agree that these things are wrong, but which standard are we gonna use? Which one are we gonna judge them by? The standards of their time or the standards of our time? And I'm not offering the right answer on these. What I'm offering is these are the things that institutions, students, administrators need to dive into the principal legacy. What does preservation mean? What does landscape fairness mean? And which moral standards should we use to make these very difficult decisions? And I think once we play out all of those, then we can come to an answer that we can agree on whether to change the building name or not. I find that last question that you pose about, are we going to judge these monuments based off of the moral standards of today or the moral standards of the time, especially thought provoking? It actually came up on a recent episode of Hidden Brain, which is one of my favorite podcasts right now in regards to um, the idea of cultural appropriation within literature. So I'm glad that you bring that up. I have one last question for you, and it's actually a question that we ask each of our guests on the series. The title of this podcast pays homage to a powerful quote by Cornell West. He reminds us that justice is just what love looks like in public. For me, the answer to that question has everything to do with the power of listening, seeking to understand others before we seek to be understood, paying attention to what's going on in our community so that we can be of service to others. And when it comes to listening, I read somewhere that you like to remind yourself that you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. I'd love if you could tell me about that. And also, in the most optimistic sense, what does love in public look like to you? Thanks for that question. And, and thanks for the way that you framed it. I start, since I've been at five or six universities throughout my professional career, I always enter that space as I kind of picture myself as an anthropologist, like I'm here to learn. So I'm, I'm here saying, teach me your ways. Teach me how you do it. Teach me what's important here. What are the values? Teach me the fight song. What's the hand signal that we use? Rather than coming and saying, when I was at this other university, this is what we was, used to do. I come here and say, nope, I want to learn how you do it. I remember at a previous school, I had a, I sent out a tweet saying, I want to learn the fight song. Can anybody help me out today? And I had about three students come to my office within an hour. 
we we put the music on a uh, they downloaded it on their phone they played the song and taught me the words and boom within an hour okay i got it i got the fight song right i wanted to make sure i knew what was important to that community and then i was here for this community not not the one that i just left i'm, I'm here for this community so to me love in public and, and justice is about entering a community with humility and realizing that these are the natives of this space and I have to respect this space upon my entry and learn the ways, respect the traditions, even when the traditions are opposite of what I may have considered appropriate. As long as no one's getting hurt, um, I, I wanna come in and learn um, before I come in and pass judgment. Um, I'd prefer not to pass judgment, but uh, so for me, it's always about listening I spent my first year at UBC doing listening sessions, just um, bringing groups of students together, offering them food, pizza usually works, and just say, tell, I ask five questions. What's working here? What's not working here? What's the one thing you wanna change? What's the one thing you wanna retain? Mm. And is there something that I didn't ask? Those are great questions. And from that conversation, the, the energy, the creativity, the insight that I leave with, you know, an hour with 10 students around a box of pizza answering those questions, my mind is always blown by what I've learned. We collected all those notes and in the first go around, it was really about student health services. Um, that was the general theme. Many people express an enormous amount of concerns about access to healthcare as a student and what it took to navigate healthcare at UBC. So for me, it's, it's really about listening and spending time listening. But in addition to that, I'll, I'll say yes and, um, it's also the work that happens behind the scenes to me is justice. I am not a social media person. I am not a, hey, come look at the good work that I'm doing. I get into the boardroom and fight it out with my peers, uh, with my colleagues, to make the university better for students. And sometimes that goes unseen, um, but at the end of the day, I feel like that's my job, to, to leave here and make something better for groups of students, whether they knew it or not. Um, so for me, justice is also um, what, you know, millions of people are doing in boardrooms behind the scene to make sure that we come to a better world, that the climate is better, that students have better access to services and food and housing and childcare. Um, a lot of that work happens behind closed doors. So many nuggets of wisdom in what you've just said, but I wrote down two things. One of them was entering a space with humility and I circled it and put exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> and also another thing that moved me about what you just said was those five questions that you asked students, this last one. What question didn't I ask? And I think yeah. about that all the time with my work here on the podcast and how as an interviewer can I make this a space for, for my guests and make it just like when you have people over in your own home, how can I make them feel welcome, feel valued? Um, so I really appreciate, appreciate you saying that. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say Dr. Ainsley, Ainsley, <laughs> thank you so much for saying yes to this conversation and, and for carving out the time to be here today. Hey, the pleasure was mine. Thank you for such incredible questions and a really good conversation. Thank you. <laughs> to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. 
I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and this has been Love in Public. This podcast was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at the University of British Columbia. It was produced by Moses Caliboso. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Ben Robinson. Oh, and one last thing. I want to take a moment to recognize today's unsung hero, Mr. Sat, the high school journalism teacher who so graciously allowed me to borrow a mic for this conversation. Thank you.